You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Quick and final reminder. As a thank you to everyone who has donated to this show in the month of August, we will randomly select one of your names and gift you a surfboard on September 1st. The board was donated by Almond Surfboards and is their new R-Series high-performance soft top made in the USA, fully recyclable. It's a thank you for supporting this work. You still have a couple of days left to participate. You can donate any amount on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. And that's where you can also see images of the board and the specs, or you can uh, go to their website, almondsurfboards.com. You can also support this show by supporting our sponsors. Today's show is sponsored by spyoptic.com. We've told you about their happy lens in the past which I've been wearing exclusively for the past six months or so. It's a technology that SPY has patented based on studies of seasonal affective disorder. Their technology lets in the beneficial qualities of long wave blue light while simultaneously blocking the harmful qualities of the short wave blue light. So it lets the good light in and blocks the bad light out. With autumn upon us and winter fast approaching, I was just going to suggest to check out their snow goggles. Maybe you've already gotten a pair of shades from them, but um, they've got a full range of snow goggles as well. Really rad designs, fantastically constructed. So you can get dialed for skiing, snowboarding, or just for gifts for the holidays. You can throw a t-shirt in your cart and then Spy will actually give it to you for free as a podcast listener. Just use our promo code podcast and it'll zero out the cost when you check out as just, again, a thanks for supporting the show. So spyoptic.com, the promo code is podcast, and you can see happy. Thanks for your ongoing support. Today's guest is Britt Merrick of Channel Island Surfboards. Britt is the son of Al Merrick, the surfboard shaper who is synonymous with the label he founded in 1969, Channel Islands Surfboards. Over the past 50 years, Channel Islands has become the largest, perhaps it still is the largest, uh, surfboard manufacturer on the planet. Their imprint on surfing is immeasurable as they built all of Kelly's boards for the decades that he was winning world titles. Same for Lisa Anderson, Tom Curran, all the way back to Sean Thompson, and of course, plenty of important non-title holders as well, like Dane Reynolds, Rob Machado, the Godowskis brothers, the Coffin brothers, the Curran brothers. I had a little trouble researching Brit in preparation for this, and it's because he's not a self-promoter. He does not have a smartphone, no Instagram account. Most of what you find about him online is related to the church that he founded. We discussed that today and the circumstances that guided him away from solely focusing on taking over the family business. Brit and his wife Kate survived the tragedy of losing a child. So we discuss how that challenged his faith. Britt has had a very interesting life thus far, and I was honored that he really took the time to reflect on it with me and um, chat about how these experiences 
and decisions we make influence and affect others and one's own perspective. So I hope that you enjoy it. It was a meaningful conversation for me. Of course, we'll have images and links to everything that we discuss on surfsplendorpodcast.com. This is David Scales, and again, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Britt Merrick. I threw the ching yesterday. It said there'd be some thunder at the well. I haven't tasted peace and quiet for so long. It seems like living hell. There's a lone soldier on the hill watching fallen raindrops pour. You'd never know it to look at him at the final shot he'd won the war after losing. Every battle. How was Spain, firstly? Spain. Uh, Spain was fun. You know, I, when I was 18, I went to the south of France for a few months and stayed with Tom Kern when he was married to Marie. And um, that was just an amazing trip for me. You know, when you're 18, like traveling the world by yourself with a couple friends. It was just Super cool, stayed at Tom's house. He was living at Anglet at the time. He had a really fun wave right in front and bought a VW van and drove all through France and Spain and Portugal and just with some friends surfing, camping, you know, could camp at all the beaches there and the car parks. And, and I hadn't really been back much since then. And that trip was like so fun and romantic and like formative for me. So I was pretty amped to go back and got to go back with my son. And he's 18 now, almost 18. He'll be 18 soon. So it was fun to go. And uh, the people that we work with over there a lot too, Pukas, they're great. We got some fun waves. I got to go uh, deer hunting over there. I'm a big hunter. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, my, my, my dad and my son and I are super into hunting. So wow. met a guy who owns a skateboard company over there. He's a frother and he's super into hunting too. So he took us. And that was cool. It was my first time hunting deer out of country. And then shaped a bunch of boards, um, more than I wanted to, <laughs> and got to meet with all the shop owners there. And kind of, we kind of did roundtables. You know, I talked a bit about the history and ethos of Channel Islands, and then sort of talk design with them and what they'd like to see from the company and with the company. It was really cool. Awesome. I really enjoy the people over there. Uh, what do you, you what do you hunt with? I do bow hunting, okay, and I also hunt with rifle, okay, and then shotgun. It just depends on what I'm hunting when. I will do any form of hunting anywhere, anytime. Did you get any deer when you yeah, were there? Yeah, okay, yeah. They have a super cool. They have several species over here, but this one's called an uh, ortho, orzo. I think they call it that, but we call it a roe deer. Okay, it's a smaller deer than the deer that you think of here. It's got a different shaped rack. It's kind of vertical with just one fork. And uh, smaller body, like 70 pounds, and it barks at you, which is a unique thing. Deer don't normally do that. So when you're hunting, like a big thing is you don't want to spook the animals. You don't want to alert them to your presence. They'll take off. And when they take off, they'll alert the other animals. But these don't just take off. They start barking like a gnarly dog, like kind of a spooky sound. And it just lights up the whole valley, and then you're blown out, and all the animals are gone. you got to try again. Are they predators? No, they're not predators. Weird. It's their defense thing. Interesting. Yeah, but it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. I've never, never hunted a deer that did that. Has there been a resurgence in hunting? Like, I feel like there's this new popularity of it. Um, like, 
my dad, my grandfather was a hunter, and my dad had general interest, but I feel just in the last like five or ten years, there's a lot of people, especially in the surf community, you know, like I know Shane Dorian is heavy in and like talks about it, but then you see Mark Healy and like all these other guys that seem to be kind of almost under Shane's tutelage. Yeah. Is there, or? Maybe there is, you know, I haven't really thought about it. I mean, I've been bird hunting for years and years with my dad, so I've always kind of been exposed to it. got into big game hunting more recently. I never really thought of about it, but you know, what I really value is we eat a lot of meat, obviously, and we're at the point now where we never have to buy meat. It's just stuff that we've hunted. And it's just a beautiful process. Like, you know the animal lived a really good life. You know the animal died quickly and ethically. You know the way that the meat was handled was clean. There's nothing added to it. The whole process is really clean and ethical as opposed to, you know, like farm-raised animals and slaughterhouses and all that stuff and all the stuff that's added to meat. And, uh, I'm just not into that stuff. So, you know, able to hunt all our own meat. We've, I feed my family, my extended family, all my friends, feed them all year long. And it's really, it's kind of a beautiful experience. Yeah, that's awesome. Plus just being out there, like, like I said, my dad and my son and I hunt together. Mm-hmm. And so for the three of us just to spend time in the mountains, it's not just about the meat and it's not about the kill and it's certainly not about the trophy. It's about that experience of being out there together and the camaraderie that happens there, the adventure that happens there. And you got to love the hunt. Like so many times I go hunting and I come home with nothing. Right. And my wife, she's super into the meat. So she'd be like, what'd you bring home? I'm like, oh, we didn't get anything. She's like, seriously, again? <laughs> I'm like, honey, you got to love the hunt. You got to love the hunt. I'm in it for the hunt. But. Yeah, but she doesn't benefit from the hunt unless you no, come back No, she doesn't. She wants the meat. She wants the meat. Um, so you mentioned your son, Isaiah. Yeah. Is he interested in board building? He is. So he's working here at the factory a bit. Okay. He's right now installing the um, spines in our spine tech boards. Mm-hmm. He's also doing our airbrushing. He's worked in the glass shop, just learning, apprenticing all the glass stuff. And then I've also been teaching him a bit of shaping, as has my father. Awesome. He's not, he hasn't really got the shaping bug. I think it. it's hard enough, like, living in my dad's shadow. Right. I think to live in Al's shadow and then my shadow and then have to shape, I think that's a little daunting for him. Yeah. But he actually really has talent. I taught him to shape a couple of years ago. He shaped his first board, glasses, started to finish by himself, and my dad looked at it. And my dad said, in all sincerity, this is the best first board I've ever seen from anybody. Wow. And like my dad doesn't BS. Like if you know my dad, he does not BS. He does not hand out compliments about surfboards readily or easily or ever. So for him to say that was like a legitimate thing. So the kid has talent. You know, he shaped several boards and fooled around. And it was neat this last year, my dad and him shaped a board together. Hmm. And then Isaiah glassed it. And we still have it in the garage. It's just... So we'll see where it goes with it. But Interesting. He's got other interests. He's into photography and filmmaking and a bunch of stuff. I'm into wine. And in California, wine manufacturer or wineries treat their winemaker like a celebrity, you know? And it's like, this wine was made by this person. And then that winemaker will take consulting gigs elsewhere and that winery will brand that person's name. Mm. And then in France, you have these super historic wineries that have been around for hundreds of years, Lafitte Rothschild, Chateau Margaux. And I couldn't name one winemaker that worked in that facility ever because the winemaker doesn't matter so much. It is this brand, this house style that they're trying to manufacture. And it's a product of the land that is most important. And the winemaker is kind of just supposed to get out of the way of good grapes, so to speak. 
And I was thinking about that with you kind of trying to fill your dad's shoes and then having Isaiah and what the legacy looks like moving forward where Channel Islands is a brand identity now. And you've started to incorporate like the Bonzer line with the Campbell brothers and these other shapers um, to add, you know, um, different product offerings and different styles of board and all that sort of stuff. But beyond just the shaper, the laminator is hugely important. The sander is hugely important, you know, and it's like the sander never put his signature on the board in the first place. So it's interesting. I I was thinking like Isaiah um, has shoes to fill in a sense, but almost he just has to play the role of the shaper, which is just one role of many in this kind of orchestra that satisfies a brand's ultimate objective, you know? So when you look at it that way, there's a lot less pressure. I think that um, for a long time in the surf biz anyways, the shaper was the celebrity and there was a lot of pressure to be that guy and to perform, but it doesn't need to be that way. Yeah, sure. You know? Yeah, I hear that. And he he loves surfing and he enjoys all the aspects of, you know, surfboards and board building, loves being in the factory. I mean, I grew up in the surfboard factory and he's spent a lot of his life around the surfboard factory. So just the feel of foam dust, the smell of resin, you know, the sounds. Yeah. Like right now, that machine going that we hear, like that stuff just feels like home to us. So, yeah, it's... The other thing is him being interested in photography and those other things will actually make him a more interesting, well-informed board builder. Yeah. If you just grow up and all you ever want to do is build boards and that's all you spend your time doing, it's yeah. it becomes, I think, somewhat too myopic. myopic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Channel Islands was started in 69, mm-hmm. I believe. What was your, when were you born? 72. 72. Okay, so what was your earliest... I mean, we're sitting in a factory now that is uh, quite impressive. Yeah. A lot of systems in place and people. What was your first experience with Channel Islands? What was it like when you were a kid? Yeah. Well, when my parents started Channel Islands, they um, it was just the ultimate mom and pop thing. I mean, my parents borrowed $200 and they bought a bolt of cloth, a barrel of resin, and they started the business. And that was the only loan they ever took in the history of Channel Islands. Wow. Was that $200 loan? And my dad would make the boards one at a time, and my mom was making clothes. We had a place on Helena Avenue right down by the beach in Santa Barbara, and in the back was a shaping bay, upstairs was a glass area, and then you go down the stairs again in the front, and that was a retail space. My mom ran the retail space, and she would make clothing by hand. So you'd come in for a surfboard, and my mom would be like, well, how about a Hawaiian shirt, too? She might make you a Hawaiian shirt or some trunks or bikinis. And it was just the ultimate mom and pop thing. It was just them. We were really poor. The house that we lived in at the time, um, you know, there was holes in the walls. I remember my mom saying she used to put pictures over the holes in the walls, and when it was windy, the pictures would blow, and she'd have to take them down so the glass didn't break. And there was grass growing up through the floorboards. like. They were super poor and they worked all day long. And then my mom had a night job. She would go and she was a waitress at Sambo's. And so I remember just being in the factory because there was nowhere else for me to be. And so I just spent all those years growing up. I mean, I literally don't have a memory that's pre-surfboard factory. Wow. I talked to people who were like, I remember you. I saw you in 1973 
in your little walker thing knocking over boards in the retail store you know what I mean like I just was always there and um, and just started you know sweeping up for my dad and kind of moved through all the different phases sweeping up and taking care of the shaping room and then running the milling machine and then packing and shipping boards and then doing the marketing and advertising and then helping run the retail store and then shaping and all that stuff so my whole existence for a long time was just growing up in that space but I just remember my parents were super dedicated craftspeople. My dad did every single board start to finish by himself. My mom made the clothes and they did it because it was just this passion for them. Like my dad just loved surfboards and loved surfers because he loved surfing. I mean my dad was such a surf dog. Like I remember in the early years Sean Thompson coming to stay at our house and he was getting boards from my dad and they were working on on twin fins and thrusters at the time it was right in the transition period and they'd be down at Rincon all day long with a quiver they'd be trying out the boards literally surf all day I'd be down there with them they'd come home at the e in the evening lay out all the boards on the living room floor my mom would be cooking and they'd be going through the boards like wow this one I like the tail rocker a little more this one's got a little better V I like the rails on this one and then my dad would like go back into the shaping room and shape another board from the feedback and then the next day like be on the beach surfing with Sean all day long like it was just a full-on thing you know you've just never seen anybody that was more stoked on surfing and surfboards and and that was it that was the upbringing amazing um i had this kind of thought and i wanted to see how much of it is directly kind of related to your dad's roadmap or if he even had a roadmap but like we could celebrate a lot of different successes for channel islands 50 years in business um his relation, Al's relationship with Kelly Slater is probably the most storied shaper surfer relationship, the most competitively successful board brand of all time. You know, there's all these things, but really to me, I think the greatest success of the brand is the ability to scale to where you have without losing one ounce of humanity mm. for the brand mm. um, or any, without losing any street cred either, you know? So the most hardcore surfers I know still today make sure they have a couple channel island sports in their quiver every year you know and they'll buy the rocket wide when that started getting advertised recently like oh i gotta get one of those so with a lot of other examples of board brands but all more importantly probably clothing brands that we've seen in surfing they scale up they grow and they kind of unintentionally abandon their core right. group that originally supported and was a fan and that's understandable because when you increase production sometimes quality gets sacrificed you start using different raw materials you know and whatever there's reasons why but I'm curious again was that all in your dad's roadmap or how did that did it happen organically like how have you guys been able to scale and still maintain all the humanity it yeah. feels like a family-run company you know yeah yeah, that's great. Thank you. Those are kind words. Well, I, I mean, what my parents really installed in me and then in all of us here, because my parents were like surrogate parents to everyone else that works here. You know, there's so many guys that have been here for 25, 30 years, you know, and in that whole range. And they started working for us when they were teenagers. And so my mom was like a mom to all of them. My dad was very much a father figure. So they sort of like mentored us in this love of the whole thing, like this love of surfboards and surfing and surfers and that we were always in it for the love. You know, we weren't in it as a business, though it is. Sure. We weren't in it for the money. We'd all be doing something else if we were in it for the money. 
we're just in it for the pure love of the thing, for the love of the sport and the love of the community and the love of the craft. And so that was so deeply ingrained in all of us. And my parents really like live that out. I mean, when you hear my dad talk about his goals with Kelly, he always says that his goal was to serve the surfer, in this case, Kelly. So he always believed that Kelly was a much better surfer than my dad was a shaper that Kelly would be able to do more on the wave if my dad could only make the boards, you know, enable him to do so. And you know that's true. We all surf better in our mind than we do in real life, right? And we could all do things mind surfing on a wave that we could never do in reality. Well, imagine, in the, this is my dad speaking in the 90s, imagine where Kelly's mind could go. And my dad would say the only thing that holds surfers back are their boards. So what his passion was to allow surfers to be the best surfers they could possibly be. So it was always, how do I serve this community, these surfers, to better do what they want to do? And that's still like the goal. Mm. That's still the stoke. You know what I mean? Like you said earlier, it's not about the shaper. It's really about the surf experience. Yeah. And what's crazy about surfing is like everybody that's a surfer has had a life-changing moment doing it, right? That's Absolutely. why we're still surfing. Totally. Like whether it was that first wave or that first barrel or that first surf trip or whatever it is, like we've all had moments where we're like, this changes everything. Yeah. This is such a stoke, this changes everything. And what we realize is that those moments happen on surfboards. Like people have life changing moments on things that we get to make. And that's super meaningful. Yeah. Like when I see someone on one of our boards have a life changing moment, like that's it. Absolutely. I'm happy. I'm satisfied. And that's always what my parents were going for, is how do we enable this experience to be everything that it could be for this community to be super stoked? How do we play into that thing? And so that's kind of like the DNA that has driven us that I think keeps it human. We're in it for the love. We're not in it for the business. We're not in it for the money. That's all part of it. We're in it for the love, the love of the experience. And that keeps me going, keeps all of us going. I think um, other brands that might have had the potential to have the success that Channel Islands have maybe haven't been able to delegate all of those responsibilities as successfully as your dad has. I mean, it takes to do what you're saying when you were a kid and it's him and your mom and they're like quality control, overlooking everything. Every personal relationship runs through them and then folding in new people into the job and delegating responsibility is stressful I mean that's hard to do yeah. do you view him is he good at delegating is that a skill set of his or yeah you know I, I would say more than delegating I would say that my dad knows what he's best at okay and he's happy to do that and he knows then the other people are better at other things it takes a so humility to acknowledge that yeah yeah he has that yeah and it's also a passion thing like I'm the same way. Like I'm just totally stoked to be in the shaping room. Yeah. I don't really want any of the other stuff that comes along with it. You know, mm. and I get that from my dad. Like, yeah, my dad was like, okay, this is all cool. I'm glad we're all doing this. Let me just shape. Yeah. Let me just shape. And he would just get in the shaping room. Everything else was like obligation. Okay. I'll do it. But it was like, let me just shape. So I think that created space then good. for other people to do what they're good at. Good. Uh, so that's a great segue, actually. What is your role at Channel Islands? Yeah. Well, I have a few things that I do. Um, <clears throat> obviously, I'm a shaper. So I have responsibilities as a shaper. We have a team of shapers here. Um, I'm called the lead designer, but really we all design together. You know, our designs have always been prompted by the surfers. 
It's always the way that it's been. I mean, I can remember my dad talking again back in the 70s when we first started working with Sean. It was Sean that was driving his designs and, and influencing him. And then it was Tom and then it was Kelly and other surfers. And we have such an incredible team. We still take our cue from the surfers. So we have such a robust team. We have different surfers working with different shapers. So we're all getting different feedback, you know what I mean? And developing different things that suit those surfers. Like you referenced, so Rocket Wide, that was developed with the Godowskis brothers and one of our shapers, Mike Andrews. And so a lot of it comes through that relationship, that working relationship, serving the surfers, getting them what they want. Um, so we all work together in that, but I guess I'm called the lead designer, but I don't know that's true. We're all doing it together and we're happy to have it be a collaborative effort. And then also my responsibility is just to kind of, um, you know, help steward the ethos and philosophy and feel of Channel Islands. Make sure that we're making consistent sort of ethical and business decisions that portray who we want to be and who we're supposed to be and who we desire to be 10 and 20 years from now. And kind of carry on the DNA of what my you know parents started. I'm on a quest to understand like what quality actually means with surfboard construction. Sometimes people explain that it's all about like light, tight, strong lamination is where the key components of quality come in. Um, some of the smaller artisanal builders will even talk about color saturation and like evenness in the color work, you know. But the most satisfying answers that I've received tend to relate to durability mm. and building a board that doesn't break or deteriorate. I'm curious, firstly, how you would define quality mm -hmm. for Channel Islands. Mm -hmm. Are you able to? Yeah, I mean, I have an opinion about that. For me, quality comes down to craftsmanship and passion. Like, are the people who are doing what they're doing stoked on it and really care about it? You know, we have a value here at Chan's, like we're surfers building surfboards. You know, there's a lot of people these days who, people that have nothing to do with surfing are building the surfboards. And that's fine, that's one thing, but like, we love surfboards and we love the experience and surfboards are meaningful and they matter to us. So we want to have a team of people here who are surfers building surfboards and they're doing it because they're amped on it. Like they care about that edge. They care about that layup. You know, they care about the way it looks. And they, so for me, that's where quality starts. And to a certain degree, like that's where quality ends, right? Like you're going to get a good product if you're passionate about it and you care about it. And so you're invested in it. So we just try to develop a culture of like, hey, we're surfers making surfboards for surfers and we're doing it because we're amped on surfboards. So when I'm in, a, in the shaping room, you know, I was just in the shaping room right before I came here. I was shaping a couple boards for Sonny Garcia, which is cool because my dad used to shape for Sonny oh. and um, Sonny and I are about the same age. So super amped to get to make him some boards. But man, I just care so much about those boards. Like, I almost care too much. It <laughs> takes me so long. You know, I'm not a production shaper. That doesn't interest me at all. I'm really thankful for production shapers and what they do. But I think I care too much about every single board. And I was, I spent hours this morning making two boards for Sunny. Wow. Should have taken like an hour. <laughs> I spent hours. You know, so like that's where quality starts for me. Like I care really deeply about those things and then we try to pass that down. Now, of course, then there's where skill comes in um, and that's something that's got to be developed and passed on. And hopefully everyone I think would say that once you've done it correctly, you get a board that is fast and loose, light but strong. There you go. <laughs> that's surfboard quality.
Well, uh, not every Channel Islands board is built in this factory, mm -hmm. correct? So how do you maintain, I mean, because the brand is known for quality, by the way. Yeah. Like, I'm not just Good. saying that to you, it, yeah. it just is. So how do you maintain exactly what you're saying for yeah. boards being manufactured elsewhere? Yeah. It's a lot of hard work. We have boards being made all over the world. Part of what I was just doing in Spain and France was that work exactly. So I was going over there, I was looking at the boards, I was speaking with our head shaper over there, I was speaking with the guys that are glassing the boards, and there was a lot to do. There was a lot of quality control to do, a lot of design stuff to talk about. And we try to do that stuff around the world. This year I'll go to Australia, I'll do the same thing. This year we have one of our shapers from here in Costa Rica. We have one of our shapers from here at Bali. We have one of our guys in Australia already this year. So it comes from here and then we try to pass it on. And then there's lots of levels within the business in which that's done. Aaron Smith, who's in charge of surfboards overall here, does tons of interfacing with our regions around the world, working on the files working on the glassing schedules. I mean, we do tons of making templates and making sure that they're exact and everyone has a consistency around the world. We make sample boards here in this factory when we have a new design that we send to all the regions around the world then that are, look, this is the way it's supposed to come out. This is how the rails are. This is what the tuck is. This is what the concaves look like. So we do a lot of work on that. And so there's that stuff, which is perfunctory in the board building part, and then just trying to instill like, Hey, everybody, let's remember, like we're in this because we love surfing. And right. we tell we have our regional sales meetings every year and we also have shapers meetings every year. So everyone from the regions around the world comes here. All our shapers from around the world come here. We retrain, right? We train them on new models. We have them shape in front of us and we say, okay, well, let's work on this. Let's work on that. We exchange ideas. We learn from them. But one of the things that we always do is we look in the room and we say, okay, everyone here is still surfing, right? Like, this is still about surfing. But it's like a serious conversation, yeah. you know? Like, you're still surfing, right? Okay, well, cool, because we're going surfing this evening. So we have all our sales meetings, but we're going to go surfing this evening. We're going to kick it up a notch. We're going to have a surf contest, you know, tonight against the regions against the regions. And, like, took all of our shapers surfing in one of the best wells at Rincon this year. And, like, it's just about that. Yeah. And we try to instill that. And, Keep that stoke going. I would think just that initial conceit would um, ensure that a bunch of other things fall in line. You know, like if the employee is passionate about the sport itself and the act of surfing, yeah. then they will make sure that it'll just ensure that they do things to yeah. a certain level of passion. Yeah. You know, you can't train and if you're running a restaurant, it's like you can't force the employee to be passionate about food. Right. You hope they're at home at night watching Netflix documentaries on food, but you can't enforce it, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's the most that you would want out of the employee is for them to have a passion for it. So, yeah. um, Can you tell me, help listeners understand the systems involved in making a board? Like, obviously, boards are cut on machines nowadays, so it's easier to send a file across the ocean to somebody and they can have a board cut to a certain spec and then just finish it. Like, can you explain what the processes are for building a board and is it the same in this factory as it is in that factory in Costa Rica or yeah. elsewhere? Yeah, let's go to the very beginning of it, which it starts with design, right? Which is what I'm most passionate about. I, I, I know I got this from my dad, but I literally, wake up in the middle of the night thinking about rockers. I did last night. Like I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about 
okay, that rocker that I just did for Zeke's US Open board, man, how's that gonna go? How can I do that better? What did I do on the rail rocker right around the fins? No, yeah, I think that's good. And then literally at the crack of the dawn, I was in my shaping room with my book open. I keep notes on every single board that I shape for all the team writers. And I was looking at it saying, okay, I did that on that one. Sick, I added some double concave there. You know, I'm gonna do that on Sunny's board. Like I'm up in the middle of the night thinking about this stuff because I love it. Like I yeah. love surfboard design. So because of that, we kind of have a value here at Channel Islands where we want to design boards a certain way. You know, a lot of boards these days are designed on a CAD program on the computer. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But that doesn't thrill me. That doesn't at all excite me. I don't think there's anything rad about that. Um, what I got from my dad was, dude, you listen to the surfer. And what you want to do is make the surfer's dreams come true. Like, what does the surfer want to feel? What is that team rider saying? Or just that guy that you surf with down at Rincom, what does he or she want to feel? Okay, your job as a craftsman, as a designer, is to interpret that and put it into the foam. That's where the beauty is. Like, that's where the excitement is, you know? So, therefore, our designs start with hand shapes. I listen to a surfer. You know, Dane Reynolds would come to me and say, look, I want more down-the-line speed. I don't want to work so hard to go down the line. I want tons of down the line speed. I want the board to hold really long in the turn on the rail, but I want it to go rail to rail really easily. Those are the things that Dane likes. So I'm, I just grab a raw blank and I start and I shape a board by hand. He gets it, ah, oh, it's cool, but this and that. Okay, I'll do another one by hand. He gets it, that's cool, but this or that. We'll do several iterations. Or maybe we get lucky and it's one, he goes, this thing's sick. Once we get the right one, then we'll scan it right we'll scan it and then the program goes into a cad the the scan goes into a cad program and then we can begin to produce it from there but it starts with a handshake because that's where it's fun that's exciting there are other ways that we do it where shapes evolve you know a lot of our our shapes evolve through the years so we don't have to start with a handshake then okay we'll you know change this rocker a bit here we'll cut some length off here we'll widen this here we do a lot of that stuff but it starts with a good design, and a lot of times that starts with a handshape, and it's always feedback from surfers. And then we have a file. And then that file can be cut on several different machines. And that's one of the challenges around the world is that there's different shaping machines, and they all interpret the files slightly differently and cut them slightly differently. You know, I was shaping on a different machine from a different machine in Spain last week than I do here. And so I had to alter how I did stuff. I had to become aware of the idiosyncrasies and the thick spots and the thin spots and where it's tucked too much. And that's one of the challenges of getting consistency around the world. That's why we actually go to those places. That's why we send sample boards. So once you get the design down, which could be a really long process. Like sometimes that's, you know, a year and a half with a surfer working on a design before like, okay, right, it's ready to go. And then once it's in the CAD program, then it's a whole nother process of refining it and making sure that it's getting cut correctly. And then getting that done around the world. And then of course, it's just all the shaping and the glassing after that. But it's a long drawn out process. It's really fun. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. 
Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Um, I'm curious, though, about um, what you know about this robot shaping machine that we've started to hear murmurs about. Mm-hmm. Um, you can explain the machine probably better than I can, but it does more than just CNC cut the blank. Yeah. And what can you tell me about it? And then when do you think that'll come online? Mm-hmm. And is CI looking into that machine or? Yeah, I first saw that machine uh, almost, how long ago was that? Three years ago maybe in Australia and was pretty impressed. Yeah. I mean, they were still developing it, but the boards would pretty much come out finished. And so there wasn't a need for a shaper, including routing in the fin boxes. And uh, it could be oper- it could run by itself. There's actually an arm that comes and grabs the blank, puts it on the stanchions, flips it over. What? So yeah, and it could run two 12-hour shifts back to back. So ostensibly, you could say you don't need the guy who runs the machine, which is actually like a whole deal. You're not just pressing a button on the machine. It's pretty complicated to align the boards. Yeah, right. You have to align it and yeah. then flip it over and align it again. We have a couple guys here that run our machines, and that's a really big deal. Like they can make or break a board Absolutely, by yeah. the way they align it or don't align it, and we're always dealing with that. Um, but that eliminates that need, potentially. And then it could potentially limit the need for a finished shaper. And that's a huge discussion about what is the value there. Um, what, what would drive us wanting to do that or not wanting to do that. I'm skeptical about that being too much of a reality. I can remember when my dad first started working with KKL back in the 90s. It's a shaping service. Yeah, the very first machine, right? My dad was the first one to work with them. And there was so much backlash because people thought, well, you know, it's going to eliminate shapers and, and all this stuff. That was, how long ago was that? That was... <laughs> I can't even count. Yeah. You know, I was 30 something years ago. 
And that hasn't been the case. We haven't really progressed that far since then, honestly. But this thing has the possibility of shaping a high quality board and you not needing to finish it. Now, there's a place for that. But there's also this. My dad used to say that the magic surfboards are made with a 220 grit. Meaning when you get down to the very final, fine nuances of a surfboard and you're using your soft pad that has 220 screen on it, that's where the magic is. That's what my dad always used to say. Because you know, you could have two boards that seem, the differences seem imperceptible, but the guy's saying, no, this one's magic. Absolutely. Or she's saying, this one's magic, right? There's nuances that are so small that we have trouble finding what to measure. So I think there's really something to what my dad was saying, that the magic is in the 220 screen. And I spent thousands and thousands of hours watching my dad shape. That's what I used to do. Mm -hmm. And I would see him, man. He would get all the perfunctory stuff down, do all the rough shaping, but then he'd get to the 220 screen and he spent a lot of time with the rockers and the contours and the rails working in that really fine area because that's what made the magic. So if we can have a machine that gets aboard to that point and then shapers like myself and others that work with those kind of surfers can spend time on that magic place, that's really exciting to me. Because so much of what, I know this isn't very broad in the surfboard world, but so much of what I do with pro surfers is like, we're talking about imperceptible little things. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, recently in the design process with Dane, we were working on his black and white model and we were getting close, but he came to me, he comes to my shaping room and we work on boards and he laid the board on the rack and he, he pointed out a little section in the rail rocker about 10 inches, 15 inches in front of the fin. It was about five inches long and he put his fingers and he goes, I think there's just something right here. I think it just needs to be a little, and he moved his hand like swiping across it, just a little swipe right there. Now, first of all, like how incredible is a surfer in their, what they can feel and in their mind to narrow in on that, right? That's a really valuable thing. Shapers really value that. Like, my dad used to thrive off of that when guys were super picky and super like intuitive and understood something and always pushed them. So um, Dane would come and say, I think it was right there. It was literally like a five inch space. And so the next board, I did exactly what he said. I tried to shape everything the same in that area. I just straightened the rail rocker a little bit. Just like, I think it was with my 80 grit sandpaper, like five little swipes hmm. and the board was magic. It was exactly what he was looking for. But that's rad, like I love that. I love those tiny little things. So if there's ever a tool that allows us to get to the point where we can even go further in those almost imperceptible things that we call magic, and there's a reason that we call them magic, right? Because it's not like other products where you just know, okay, it's got the right angle there and it works. Like there's all these variables that are not just about the shaping process, but how was the sander doing that day? How was the layup? What was the weather like? How, what was the, humi the humidity when this blank was done? Like all that stuff. Yeah. That's why we call magic board magic. It's almost impossible to get all those factors to come together. So any tools that help that, I'm in support of. I don't think that we'll ever get to the place where there's not a space for shapers. I just think that it's, it's bigger than that and it's more beautiful than that. And there's people that just want to shape. Like that's, that's fine if we could create some boards 
and um, someone didn't necessarily have to shape as much on those. But there's still people that like want to shape surfboards. Like this is a craft. This yeah. is an art form. This is a lifestyle. I'm always surprised at the alarmists. You know, like when something automated mm-hmm. becomes available. It, even with that machine, by the way, when people have talked about it, it's in hushed tones. Yeah. And they're just like, ooh, did you hear about what's coming down the pipeline? Oh, it's really a bad thing. Yeah, It's all anti. And I don't feel that way at all. I view it as just, like you said, a tool that allows you to spend more time on interesting parts of the job, you yeah. know, and on communicating yeah. with people. And yeah. um, if you take the opposite extreme of, well, you could start out with a giant block of foam and try to find the surfboard in there. Well, yeah, you would waste the vast majority of your time just getting to the point of where a blank is yeah. currently. Yeah. You know, So that doesn't make any sense at all. Well, then the other end of the extreme is what you're talking about, where you have this really fine-tuned shape that comes off of, by the way, a very fine-tuned design that took a lot of time to even get to that point. Yeah. You free up all of these hours to refine even further and to communicate with customers or surfers or whoever it happens to be so i'm all for it i think um i think there's a lot of aspects to this work that could be automated yeah yeah and it's it's yet to be seen you know i mean the the machine from what i've seen is good but it's not there there yet no but get it out in the market get some feedback on it use it a bunch and then make it even better you know service all our needs and the surfers needs even more um who have you built the most boards for? Uh, who, as in Channel Islands, or who is no, it? No, no. Which surfer have you worked with the most? Uh, Dane. I was Dane's first shaper when he first started surfing. Dane started surfing a little late in life, like maybe twelve or something right. like that. And he came to one of our challenge team workouts that my dad and I ran together early on. Jeff Brack brought him, who was a surfer from Ventura. I know Jeff. Yeah. I can still remember the first time that I saw Dane surf. It was right here in front of the factory at uh, the backside of Rincon, Indicator Left. It was like two feet that day. The Malloy brothers were there, Jeff Brack, and here comes Dane. We're like, who's this bucktooth kid? <laughs> and he went out and he got this left. He's one on, on one of Jeff Brack's hand-me-down boards. It was a little long for him. And we were just like, what? This kid's unbelievable. And we put him on the team right away and I started shaping his boards. They were like one and seven eighths inch thick. I mean, he was tiny. And uh, shaped his boards for years. And then there came a point, my dad contests this, or he says he doesn't remember it, but there came a point where Dane got big enough. My dad walked into my shaping room day and he's like, I'll be shaping for Dane now. Yeah, but now it. you're back to shaping. Now I'm back to shaping for Dane. But you know, at that time I was also transitioning more into the ministry and yeah. had other interests, and I didn't shape for a while, and so that all worked out perfectly. Uh, so yeah, I do ton of boards for Dane. He's great to work with. He's just really smart and intuitive. Really understands surfboards, shapes boards himself, and right. is getting proficient at shaping surfboards, and uh, he's fun to work with. I think it's interesting that the most successful competitive surfers have all had these like really long-term relationships with shapers. Certainly Kelly and your dad for 25 plus years. Um, John John and Pizel now is another example of that. Stephanie Gilmore, DHD. Um, After hearing you talk about that refining process, that makes a lot of sense in that like the real successes start coming in the long yeah. term refinement but I also wonder how much of it 
can be how much of the magic equation can be attributed to that or perhaps is there just a character trait in those surfers where it's just like their level of dedication to something to that relationship in this example maybe is the key ingredient as well yeah. you know um so I'm, I'm curious what are your thoughts on that like from working is there a unique ingredient in working with guys that you've worked with long term unique to their character that lends itself to the success or maybe it's ability to communicate even you know like yeah. Dane that level of communication from Dane is pretty odd yeah it's astounding it's astounding he's 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 unique but the communication thing is huge so what what my dad and I have tried to do is to teach surfers as much as we can about their surfboards so That's that they key. can better communicate. Yeah. So you think about, you know, Kelly knows a lot about surfboards. My dad taught them all that. You know, they spent a ton of time in the shaping room. Rob Machado, everything that he knows about surfboards, he learned from my dad. They spent a ton of time in the shaping room. This year, uh, last couple of years, I've been working with Zeke Lau, yeah. teaching him about surfboards. He comes to my house, we hang out for a few days, my shaping room's at my house. We go in there and we're talking about surfboards and I'm teaching him about surfboards. And when he says, this feels like that, I say, okay, well, I think it might be that. What do you think? And what are you feeling this? Now, Zeke, I added V here. What are you feeling when you're on the tail? And we try to educate the surfers so that we could have a more meaningful, progressive dialogue and communicative relationship about the surfboards so that that person can surf better. That's really fun to do. You know, I love when a lot of surfers know nothing about surfboards. Yeah. Right? And a lot of pro surfers. Yeah. Right? There's a lot of guys who, and girls who come in the shaving room. They know nothing. They don't even know their dimensions. They're just like, I need another 5'8", right. you know? Uh, but it's really fun to educate them and then see the light bulb go on. And then they begin to understand design and then they feed the designs. Yeah. That's a really good give and take. So we try to educate the surfers and then listen to them. But a lot of times it's trying to interpret the surfers. Yeah. You know, they'll use terms like, wow, it's, it feels a little wiggly right there. Okay, bro, what is, what is wiggly mean? And what, okay, how am I going to interpret that as a designer, as a shaper? What does that mean? Um, but that, that whole relationship is so fun. You know, I've been working with uh, Lakey Peterson. She's had a great year. She's surfing really well. And just refining just small things on her boards, but she's able to just, I think the honesty is a big deal, you know, her and other surfers, we try to develop a, a relationship where she's able to say, no, that doesn't really work or that works, you know, mm -hmm. this one and let's keep it like that. And that's sometimes people don't want to hurt your feelings. Sure. And shapers are really sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. We're really sensitive. Like, I made it with my hands and you don't like it? What do you mean? Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you who gets you over that is Dane Reynolds. He'll just be like, bro, this board sucks. Really? Yeah. It's like, that board's hideous. <laughs> what is the objective with, I mentioned earlier the collaborations with um, the Campbell brothers and Donald Brink. Mm -hmm. And I, at, when I mentioned it, I tried to explain why you guys were doing it. What is your thought on it? Why are you guys incorporating yeah. other um, brands, basically, yeah. into the Channel Islands lineup? Uh, it's mostly just like a relationship and respect thing, you know? Like, um, for the Campbell brothers and Malcolm, uh, they've been just 
around the area for so many years, you know, in the 70s again. <laughs> my dad was kind of shaping up here in Santa Barbara and they were shaping down in Ventura and Oxnard and there was like this progressive design development going on in both ends of the coastline here and once in a while all that design work would meet at Rincon mm -hmm. and there'd be this competitive thing and so I think there's like this real shared history and then Malcolm shaped for my dad for 25 years so when I was a little kid growing up in the factory Malcolm was always there shaping for my dad and um, so for us it was just like there's a shared history there's a shared love of the art and value of it and there's so much connectivity between us gosh it'd be kind of fun to do something together yeah you know awesome and then there's you know the business end of it like that's cool it, it helps us to incorporate new stuff and we're gonna learn it maybe exposes him to a different customer and that's all cool part of it but really it's just like this will be fun you yeah. know one of the occasions was Malcolm and Dane and myself all in the shaping room doing a board together. Like, that's the coolest thing in the world. That's so fun to get to do that. And I'm really humbled to get to learn from a guy like Malcolm. And so that's fun. And then Donald, you know, Donald approached us. Donald has such an amazing mind, as you know, and such amazing design theories about asymmetrical boards and how they work and why they work. And he wants to see those furthered. He's really committed to that particular sort of vein of design and he wants to see it advanced. And so he values Channel Islands for the ways that we could possibly help advance that and bring that to a bigger platform and resources that we could bring to that. But there's a mutual respect there. Yeah. You know, there's shared values there and there's shared approach and sort of lifestyle and so it just is an easy connection. Good, I, I'm all for it. I mean, I it goes back for me viewing it from the outside to looking at how you guys have scaled the business and incorporated different elements along the way and empowered people to do what they do really well. And that's an example of it because, I mean, I've, um, I'm completely open to the idea of asymmetrical surfboards and the design or the uh, theory makes a lot of sense, mm -hmm. but applying it correctly and being able to have the conversations with the shaper is really where um, you can have success with it. Yeah. And I've always felt like he's not accessible to a broad enough number of people. It'll always be these kind of one-off things, and it just limits yeah. the growth of it. Yeah. So I think that a relationship like this can help get a very valid design into a lot more people's hands. Yeah. You know, So I'm all for it. Um, I know you, when you were growing up, you intended to just solely be a shaper and devote all of your professional hours towards that, and that's yeah. not really the way that things... Um, have panned out for you. Yeah. Did you go to college? I did. Went Which to college? Went to UCSB. What'd you study? Studied uh, communications. Okay. Yeah. How yeah. did you get involved with founding? Is um, it Reality? Yeah, Reality, the church and the family of churches. Um, well, my parents are Christians. Raised me in a Christian home. I became a Christian when I was a kid, and Christianity was like real for us. You know, it wasn't just like a namesake thing. It was like real. Um, we tried to live it out, you know, tried to, my parents tried to live it out in the way that they ran the business and the way that they treated people. Um, we tried to live it out in our lives. I went through a crazy period in high school where I definitely was not acting like a Christian by any means. Um, but after high school, I went on a surf trip to Australia and I had a pretty profound experience there with God that was like, I don't know how to explain it, it was profound, you know what I mean? It just felt like... Um, though I had walked away from God, he hadn't walked away from me, and he was kind of calling me back to him. 
I was like 19 years old or something. And so from then on, I was pretty serious about my faith, as was my family and my parents. One of the things that they did in the 70s was they used to have Bible studies for surfers. So I still meet people who are like, oh, dude, I was at a Bible study at the factory in 1974 and got saved. You know, I was born again, gave my life to Jesus in 1974. Your dad was teaching it and your parents were there. And so that's one of the things that they did in the early years. And so then in my early 20s, uh, my wife and I started teaching Bible studies for surf kids. Just went down to the local beach and we'd invite them back to the house and we'd watch a surf movie and my mom would like make a cake or cookies or something. And we'd do a little Bible study. And... Um, that just kind of snowballed, you know, it became this thing on Friday night that was college kids, mostly college kids, and there was hundreds of kids there. And then we just kind of felt called to start a church. And it's never what I intended to do. It's never what I wanted to do. I'm still not sure it's what I want to do, um, but we felt a clear call from God. And what's interesting about that is in the early 70s, I keep referencing the early 70s, but cool period of time, I guess, <laughs> In the early 70s, my parents flirted with starting a church and going into the ministry. And they kind of thought they might be feeling the call here in this same community. And it sort of came to a head where they made a decision, no, we think we're going to continue with the surfboard business. And for them, it was very much like, we're still going to continue to serve God, but we're going to do it through this avenue. You know, this is what God would have us do. But my dad at the time was teaching Bible studies. A lot of people were asking him to be their pastor and to start a church. And it's interesting then that about 30 years later, I started a church in the same community. Yeah. But what I wanted to do was surfboards. So it's so weird. My parents wanted to go in the ministry, but they felt like God was calling them to surfboards. I wanted to do surfboards, but I felt like God called me into the ministry. And it's just so weird how it's gone full circle. Yeah. And so uh, my parents are super involved in the church. They're there every Sunday. We've started churches in Santa Barbara, Ventura, Los Angeles, San Francisco, London, England, Honolulu, Boston, all over the place. So it's a huge part of my life and our life as a family and what we do, but um stoked to get to do it with surfboards as well. What did you preach on yesterday? Yesterday. Yesterday, we're in the book of Acts, and we're preaching on a story where Peter, the apostle, gets a vision from God that he's supposed to go tell this guy who's 30 miles north in the city named Caesarea about Jesus. And the guy was a Roman military commander. And he's someone who normally wouldn't have much to do with the God of the Bible or with Jesus or that stuff, but God was doing something in his life. And it was sort of crossing a cultural and religious boundary for Peter to go tell this guy the good news about Jesus. And it was a profound moment because it's when the church first realized that the gospel of Jesus is for the whole world and it wasn't just for Jews who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So uh, I preached on that. Um, so you're, are you the head pastor at the local? Yeah. Okay, so you're preaching every Sunday. Yeah. I'm curious to hear what your work week looks like <laughs> in regard to like your head design role here and yeah. head pastor role there. Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, lot. It's a lot. And you have a family. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of hobbies, way too many hobbies. Hunting. No, it takes hunting. a lot of time. Yeah, between hunting and surfing, I'm swamped over here. I got no time for a job. Um, you know, it's a real balancing act. Uh, but I've, both of them are really important. I feel called and excited to do both of them. Both organizations sort of understand that I have obligations at either or. And I'm really blessed in that from both organizations, I have a huge amount of flexibility. 
So I just kind of take it as it comes. Some weeks it's like I got to be fully dedicated to the work of the church. Some weeks I'm fully dedicated to Channel Islands. It's usually a mix of both, you know what I mean? Yesterday I was preaching all day, and then afterwards we had some meetings with um, a family who pastors our church up in Stockton. They were here visiting, and then this morning I was in the shaping room early. You know, so it's like flowing from one to the other. Tomorrow I'll shape early in the morning, and then I'll go to the church during the day. So it's a lot. You've got to be good at time management. You have to be stoked on what you're doing. But man, I love shaping boards and I love serving the Lord. And I'm so thankful to get to be able to do both. Like I literally can't think of two cooler, more fulfilling things I'd rather be spending my time doing. Good. Um, I partnered with Donnie Brank on a podcast. Oh, yeah. Like he's was one of my initial guests like five years ago. Yeah. And, um, Recently, he wanted to get involved in like interview people, and he has all these interesting conversations with customers. And so, he wanted to do his own podcast. So, I'm getting behind and um, producing. But one of the first things that the public said, somebody, I think it might have been on Instagram, was like, "Oh, this better not be a preachy podcast. Otherwise, I'm going to abandon it immediately." Yeah. I'm sure there's cynics out there who will hear this part of our conversation, and be like, "Done with this. Delete this episode." Why do you think people are so resistant to hearing alternative viewpoints when it comes to religion? Yeah. And my question is, like, if um, there's a long border, let's say, listening to the podcast, and you and I are talking about shortboards this whole conversation, he'll still listen, you know, and he'll still go, well, I'll try to find something that applies about the shortboard conversation to my world of longboarding. They're not resistant to the idea. Well, you know, shortboards and longboards don't have sort of life or death consequences. (laughs) And they don't teach, they don't touch the deepest core of who we are. And if, if certain things are true about God and the Bible and Holy Scripture and spirituality, if certain things are true, then hard things have to be realized admitted, confronted, and said. There's gotta be some like actual lines drawn. Everything can't just be gray. There is gonna be some black and white. There's gonna be some things that are right and some things that are wrong. And we live in a culture that doesn't like that. We live in a culture that wants it to be all gray and wants it to be all relative and embraces pluralism. But true religion is gonna have some absolutes. And it's gonna say, look, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And this is what we believe and this is what we don't believe. And it's not just that people don't like to have their opinions challenged, but the nature of those things is so deep, right? We're talking about our morals, we're talking about our spirit, we're talking about our deepest feelings and emotions, um, what, where we believe grandma is or isn't, you know, what we believe about eternity and who we're accountable to and what moral law is, just really deep issues. So I totally understand how our culture feels about that. and. Um, But if we truly believe what we believe and that what we believe is true and that it's good news, that God loves people and that Jesus is a savior who gave his life for the world, then we want to lovingly tell people about that. Yeah. I'm impressed by the growth of reality in the last, was it 2003 that you founded? Um, So 15 years. You guys have experienced a lot of growth. Yeah. How much do you oversee new churches that are founded under the reality um, family? Yeah, that's a great question. The goal for all the churches in the reality family is to become autonomous churches. Oh, okay. 
um, but we are a family, so we're bound together by relationship and sort of philosophy and values. But when the churches start, uh, it's kind of like having a kid. You know, we, we see it as church birthing, so we're heavily involved in overseeing those churches. So all of our churches have been started by guys that I mentored and discipled and raised up, and then we send them as a church and we support them 100% while they're getting going until they're able to stand on their own two feet and be self-sufficient, and then we enable them to be autonomous, and then we sort of just stay connected and accountable to each other through relationship. Got it. Interesting. Back, I mean, it kind of reminds me of the delegation conversation from earlier, you know, just kind of growing and being able to um, empower other people to operate yeah. the same kind of... That's a great way to put it. I mean, that's the goal is to empower other people. The goal is to accumulate more control, right? Or to have more responsibilities. I don't want more responsibilities. Exactly. But I do want to see people live out their callings and their passions and do things that they feel are important. So anytime you can empower and enable that, that's rad. Um, Can we talk about Daisy? Yeah. In September 2009, your daughter Daisy was diagnosed with cancer, nerf-sized, um, nerf football-sized Wilms tumor in her abdomen. It was removed um, after celebrating the success, new, tumor, new tumors formed and were removed, and ultimately after a three-year battle, Daisy passed away. Um, firstly, before I get into any questions, do you have anything that you want to share about that experience and, you know how one survives such a tragedy while keeping a family intact? And... Uh, that's, a gr- that's, a good, that's a great question. <laughs> um, so is that your question? How does one survive that? I'll let you. I have other questions too, but what, are your, what do you want to share about that experience firstly? I'll let you lead. Um, well, they say whoever they is but they say that there's probably nothing more painful that you could ever experience than the death of a child i don't know if that's true or not um there might be something analogous to that in christianity like you know the whole paradigm of Christianity is that God gave His Son Jesus to die on the cross in our place to pay the price for our sins. So maybe that is the ultimate expression of love, because the Bible says that God did that because He loves us, and maybe then that's the ultimate sacrifice to give a child and to lose a child. So maybe there's some mystical cosmic analogy with that, but. The pain of losing a child is like nothing that I ever imagined. And I don't think it's something that you ever get over or necessarily supposed to get over. I don't ever want to get over Daisy. Like I never want to get over Daisy. I miss Daisy every single day. I never want to forget her. I you know, I want to feel what I have to feel. The weird thing about grief and feelings is there's no authentic way around them other than to feel them. You have to feel it. You gotta go into it. But with something like the death of a child, and it wasn't just the death of Daisy, it was like f- almost five years of pretty radical suffering. You know, to watch a child die of several uh, cancer relapses and everything that she went through. So all that pain, at the end of it, it seems so big like it will consume you. 
you know, when you stare it in the face, it seems so dark and endless that it will consume you. But there's nothing to do but go into it. You have to experience the feelings that you have to experience. Otherwise, you'll never be whole. You'll never actually live life if you just live your whole life trying to dodge the emotions or dodge the, the reality of the pain or facing up to what you have to face up to. For my wife and I and my family and I, I mean, we, we often talk about this because we meet a lot of families who are suffering with similar things. We, we don't know how somebody goes through it without like real faith, you know? Um, for us, it felt like at times the only thing that was keeping us together was just Jesus, was just holding us together, you know, and our faith in him. Um, the, the paradox in that is that that kind of experience really makes you question your faith because I worship and I serve this God who I also believe to be sovereign and which means like in control of the whole world and able to do anything. Um, and yet my daughter suffered horribly and died. How does that jive with my belief in a good God and a God of love? How do I live into that and live out of that? Those are like radical questions. I don't know if they have real answers. I don't know if there's like a sentence I could write that explains that. But what I did realize was this, because we questioned all those things deeply. I realized at one point when I was really struggling with, God, how could you be good and be a God of love and yet my, my daughter is dying? And then I realized that people's kids die all around the world every single day. And it never bothered me until it was my kid. And what does that say about my character And my faith, if I never questioned God about his goodness until it was my kid, there's kids dying horrible deaths every day around the world. So that didn't answer anything, but that humbled me. Showed me how like incredibly selfish I am. I was able to just not worry about that paradox, that that troubling question until it was, you know, personal for me. So that humbled me and I think that enabled my family and I to sort of, um, sort of just approach it in a different way that I don't, it's hard to explain, but just, we just had to choose like, God, this doesn't make sense. And a lot in this world doesn't make sense, but we trust you. And that's not an easy place to come to. The, when you face what we face, to be able to come to the place where we say, we still trust you, God, is not an easy thing to do. But I think that if God is truly God, he's not obligated to prove himself to me. I'm just part of creation. He's not obligated to have to justify who he is or what he does to me. 
I think that God already showed who he was by being willing to give his son Jesus to pay the price for my sins and the sins of the world, that I might have forgiveness and new life. He has already once and for all demonstrated that he is a God of love. To that degree, I can understand. There's a whole lot of subsequent stuff that I have a hard time understanding, but God has already proved that he is good and he's a God of love. I don't think that I or humanity are in place to demand that he prove it over and over again. If we do that, I think that's a dead end. At some point, we have to have what is called faith or trust and say, okay, God, it doesn't make sense to me, but I think because of what you did in light of the cross and Jesus for me, that you are good and you do love me and you do care and you do have a plan, I'm gonna to choose to trust it. We came to that place. Um. You guys, you and I think your wife as well, certainly Kate, she wrote a book about it, yeah. um, and Still She Laughs is the name of the book, but your willingness to discuss it is um, amazing. Like, it feels very brave, and through the process as well of those years dealing with going through treatment and the tumors and stuff, um, there was, listeners might remember, there was this Pray for Daisy campaign and website that was documenting like a very sweet, sweetly kind of done website that documented the process from Daisy's point of view as well. That, I think, is uh, very helpful and beneficial for listeners and for people. And that's why I wanted to ask you about it and have mm-hmm. you talk about it. I had Jamie Brissick on the podcast a while back and we talked about he lost his wife right. at a certain point. And yeah. I was nervous to even ask him about it, really, but he's willing to discuss it and he's written about it and so it was okay. But I'll tell you, the feedback after that was like really heartwarming. Like Mm -hmm. listener feedback, people reached out because they're going through stuff and they need guidance and they need advice for how to process. Um, Saturday, two days ago, I went to Alex Gray's um, sibling grief therapy he does like this surf get together are you familiar with this Mm -hmm. does this surf beach day get together for um grief therapy basically for anybody who's lost a sibling yeah so i went to that and um did you lose a sibling i lost a cousin 15 years ago who was basically a sibling like we grew up together he was nine months younger than i and um surfing was the epicenter of our life together like we found it together as young kids we took the bus to the beach, like spent all our time at the beach and surfed together, like mm. best buds. And so closer than I am with my actual siblings. And he passed away to drug related circumstance mm. like 15 years ago. And Alex, his brother passed away right. to drug related circumstance. And um, I had him on the podcast as well. And he talked about that and talked about doing these group therapy sessions at the beach. And Alex has no professional training in this. He's not a therapist. He's really amazing at it. Like I was shocked at how well he um, led the group, but also gave space. And like he didn't over talk. He didn't demand anything of anybody. He just gave a platform for people to chat. But what I was going to say was community is important and talking about it is important and talking about it because left to your own devices, I think you will stew and it's all in the dark and you start to go crazy, you know, um, And so having a platform and a community to share thoughts with and just to get stuff off your chest, and then, of course, to hear how other people have managed Mm -hmm. is impactful and helpful. 
So when I had Alex on the podcast, he talked about it openly and um, said, oh, you know, I did this one group therapy session and I'm going to do others. And having him saying it verbally kind of held him accountable for doing it. Mm -hmm. Then we got a bunch of feedback from listenership and he was amazed by that. And we realized that there's this community that exists that aren't all in the South Bay that can't all attend this thing. But this community existed um, online in the internet, you know, that was like humbling and really reminded you of like, oh, this is important. These are important conversations to be having and real conversations because everybody's dealing with something. What I wanted to ask you though was, we're more often the support system for people. You know, we all will lose people in our lives, but that happens less frequently than we are supporting somebody. What are ways, what are maybe ways that people have um, not been so supportive? Are there things that people say that are just like very in uh, sensitive? And then what ways is it helpful to be supportive? You know, my wife and I always joke that we're someday we're going to write a book about the horrible things people say to people who are suffering. But we say that lightheartedly because everybody means well. Exactly. Yeah. But when, when you're faced with something like that, Nobody knows what to say, and there's really nothing to say. No. There's nothing that anybody could say that's going to make it better. There's just not. And so, but people are so uncomfortable with silence. So people would say the just the worst things. But we, you know, and sometimes, depending on our mental state at the time, sometimes we're able to like, okay, yeah, just shrug it off. Other times it was really hard for us. Other times we laugh about it. But people don't know what to say. But they care about you, so they want to say something. You know what I mean? So we're um, we're understanding toward that, but it would be fun someday to write that book about the things that people say. Yeah. But I think we've also learned to just sit with people in their grief. That's what people need. They need withness. You know, the friends that we most valued were friends that were just able to be there. They knew we didn't expect them to have the answers. They knew they didn't have the answers, but they were just willing to sit with us in our grief. The Jewish culture has something that is a part of their culture, sitting in Siva, where someone dies and you come and you just sit with the family for days on end. And um, that's a really valuable thing, just to share that space. And especially in our culture where it's so hard for people to be present, it's so hard for people to be quiet, right and people are so uncomfortable with like real stuff there's so much value when someone enters into your pain and they're willing to sit with you in it um so we really valued that and the hard part is also it's unfair because like if someone doesn't say something about daisy you're kind of bummed and if they say something that's kind of weird. So nobody can win. You know what I mean? Now it's not such an issue. It's been a few years. But when it first happened, like you're like, wow, they didn't mention my dead daughter. Is that not a big deal to them? Or like, I can't believe you're bringing up my dead daughter. I'm trying to be okay right now. Right. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, A Grief Observed, where he lost his wife. He writes about that in the first chapter, how it was no matter what someone did, it wasn't okay. If they mentioned it, I had a problem with it. And if they didn't mention it, I had a problem with it. So you just got to sit with people in their pain and, you know, that's helpful. Alex's dad, uh, Dudley, was talking about 
kind of similar to you, like you never get over it and it's always woven into your fabric, you know? And then when it is most intense early on, you're making decisions at that point and those decisions shape your future. And so you're always, it's just woven into the fabric and it becomes Mm -hmm. less intense at some point. But he was talking about a lot of the good that it's done um, for in terms of like their family is tighter because mm-hmm. of it. And they're having real conversations that they weren't having previously. Yeah. You know, there's more connectedness. And I'm sure a situation like that could also break a family apart. Certainly it could break a marriage apart. Yeah. Um, are there any ways that that experience enriched your life? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, to address the family one, you know, at some point when we were a few years into Daisy's cancer, uh, some social worker or something told us a stat, and it, I can't remember exactly what the stat was, but it was well over 90% of couples who go through what we're going through end up getting divorced. I can see that. Yeah, totally can see that. And I've seen it happen to families. Um, but thankfully for Kate and I, like, it just drew us closer together you know we just fell more in love with each other we felt like more like a team um there's no one else in the world that it seemed could really understand what we're going through so for us it was really enriching for our marriage and our relationship and it was really enriching for our whole family my parents included and my sister and others because you know that kind of stuff just brings everything into focus begin to figure out pretty quickly like what's important and what's not important and what's real and what's not real and where you want to put your time and effort and so that's really shaped who we are and what we value and how we want to spend our time and you know I find myself actually grasping for those lessons as time moves on because you know you get influenced by culture and you get busy and other things and you start to lose I think some of the sense of those deep, deep lessons of really understanding what's important in life and what's not, and the idea of being present, you know, um, with God and with people that you love and, and being present to other people and just enjoying every moment. There's something that is actually really beneficial for the human soul in suffering. Um, and it could be very much the opposite, but there's just a perspective to be gained through suffering if we're willing to go through it that is really valuable. So there's lots of ways that it enriched our life. I wouldn't do it again. Of course. I would totally trade it. There's nothing I wouldn't give to have my daughter back. Um, but you have to, at some point in life, learn to live with gratitude for the bright spots. Yeah. And there's lots of bright spots. Yeah. Fascinating, interesting. Um, I think, I don't know, when you first, we first started talking about it, you were talking about, you know, um, trying to process and reconcile like faith with how could this sort of a thing happen. And my interpretation of the Bible and its promises aren't so much about that you won't be suffering at any point. Right. You know what I mean? It's more like, here's a roadmap for how to deal with that suffering and here's yeah. this promise in the future in a different life. Yeah. But to conflate that with there will be no suffering on earth is really incorrect. You're absolutely right. It's, it's dead incorrect. If Jesus said explicitly, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Right. 
and you're you're absolutely right. The Bible is full of um, honest speak about that fact that we live in a crazy world because of sin, because of rebellion against God, and that it's going to get crazier. Uh, that Jesus came to confront sin and all evil, and will ultimately one day deal with it all. There will be a judgment where everything that has gone wrong is set right, and until that time. Life is going to be crazy and life is going to be hard. But as you said, here's a way to journey through it. Right. And, you know, I've been a preacher for a lot of years, so it's a lot easier to, to talk about it than to do it, you know? Totally. Like I said, everything changed when it was my kid. But there were times where Kate and I felt like, gosh, we can't even hold on, but God was just holding on to us. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, not to make too um, hard of a diversion... But back to surfing, how closely do you follow the WSL? Very closely. I would think. Yeah. Who are you shaping boards for currently that's on tour? Um, Lakey and uh, Connor O'Leary, uh, Zeke Lau, uh, and a few others here and there, but those ones I'm committed to pretty full time. Who's your pick for the men's title and the women's title this year? <laughs> Be bold. <laughs> Oh, like my hope or my pick? I'll, I'm willing to listen to both. Yeah. Well, for sure, Lakey, for the women's title, is my pick and my hope. Um, you know, the men's, it's a little bit of a confounding year for the men's. Yeah. It's a really different year, isn't it? This is the first year where, I, and I'm just now realizing this, where I don't even really want to venture a guess. Remind me who's in the top five right now. Felipe, Idolo, Gabriel, Julian, and I'm not sure who the fifth would be. Yeah. What a different set of names. I know. Like... Um, actually, Jordy might be the fifth. Mm. I think we'll figure out, we'll have a lot more clarity after Chopu. Mm -hmm. You know, like Felipe is unproven at Chopes, and if it's big, then that might take him out of the equation. Gabriel's very proven yeah. in all conditions, especially in the back half of the year. It's like he always thrives in the back half of the year. So I think Gabriel could be the safe bet. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping for Julian, Julian or Jordy, but probably Julian. I just yeah. feel like he's so unbelievably technically sound. Like his fundamentals are so sound. He serves so good. He's so beautiful to watch. I feel like, uh, and he's a pipe master and like he could win it. Um, on the women's side, I'm rooting for Lakey big time. I've always loved Lakey. Cool. I feel like her being sidelined by injury She's come back with like more fervor and passion, which yeah. often happens. Yeah. Um, but she just looks so good, yeah. so fiery. Yeah. Boards look better than ever. Yeah, like you. she's won the U.S. Open. She could take that event this yeah. week. And I love the her and Stephanie race. Yeah. is a great race. So um, I'm excited to watch the rest of the season play out. I am too. I'm frothing. And I think I'm more excited about the women this year than the men. Yeah. Um, Idolo, I think, is interesting. Like, he's really put in some amazing performances, the Bells Beach thing yeah. and Karama. So, 
I'd like to see him. If I had to pick one out of the current top five, I would pick Idolo. Okay. The reason I would pick him, I like his surfing, but he rides Patterson's, and I like Patterson. Passion play there. Little. <laughs> I, like, I like Patterson, man. I, I, I really like his boards. Okay. Cool. I think he's a great shaper. I think his designs are sick. I'm always surprised that uh, more guys don't ride him on tour. I wish I had a Patterson. I kind of tried to get one from him recently. I saw him at the boardroom show. I didn't see him. I saw like his guy, yeah. whoever his guy is. I went to go see Timmy. I, went, I kept going back to the booth to try to see Timmy, but we kept missing each other. I've actually never met him, but I've just always really respected his boards. Wow. And I kind of tried to like, hey, you know, it'd be cool to get one. And then Timmy actually sent me a couple messages like, hey, it'd be cool to connect. And uh, I try to get a board out, but I don't think it's going to happen. But Come on. I'm sure I, you could pull that together. <laughs> I want I want Idolo to win because he rides Patterson's. I'd like to see Patterson get a world title. I like it. That's a good pick. Um, we're, ki- we're kind of on a precipice right now with wave pools coming online, the Olympics happening in Tokyo. Um, surfing could explode in this next decade. Do you feel optimistic about those things? Um, I feel like similar quote-unquote big opportunities have come along in the past and they never quite, surfing never quite develops beyond the coastlines. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Do you feel optimistic about those things? Well, I'm hopeful. Optimistic and hopeful are two different things. I'm hopeful, and the reason is because, like I said earlier, man, I'm in this thing for the love. Like, I just love surfing, and I love surfboards, and I would love for more people to experience that. You know, I know there's a little bit of a thing in surfing, like us four and no more, shut the door, like, you know. But people's lives change on surfboards and surfing, like I said before, and it's such a beautiful thing. I would love for more people in the world to surf. I don't know, surfing makes you happy. Surfboards make you happy. Connor O'Leary came by the other day to pick up a new quiver of boards, and he was so frothed. And he's like, my friends always ask me, like, is it even fun to get new boards anymore? You get, you know, whatever, 100 boards a year. And he's like, I just get frothed out every time, man. Yeah. You know, like, and I'm that way too. Like, gosh, I have an obscene amount of boards. But, like, surf, a good surfboard makes you happy. Yeah. And if more people were happy in the world, that's a good thing. So I'd like to see it explode. I'd like to see more people experience this thing. It's so beautiful. Awesome. What does your personal quiver look like? Do you ride other boards from other shapers? And how informative is that for your shaping experience? Yeah. I do on occasion. Um, I've always, throughout the years, gotten a couple Arakawas here and there. Oh, really? Yeah. I really respect him as a person, and I really respect his surfboards as well. Um, so years ago when I was going to Hawaii, I have a friend that lives over there who's about my same size and I would go steal his boards and ride Arakawa's when I was there and then ordered a couple. I've got one in my garage right now, a 6'9", little swallowtail Arakawa. So I've ridden those. Um, I asked him a couple years ago to sort of like mentor me in, in guns and help me with shaping guns. And he said he'd do it, but it never happened. So maybe he'll hear this podcast now and like feel the pressure. I've had him on the podcast. Yeah. yeah. Cool. We'll send this to him. Um, so I really value his boards. I've learned stuff from writing his boards. I got some boards a few years ago from Proctor, who's a shaper in Ventura. He's a great shaper, also a great guy. And I really, really liked his boards. 
had a great time surfing on him. He made great grovelers. Mm. Yeah, sick grovelers. We kind of worked on one together called the Grease Pig. And uh, sick, such a good board. I have three of them in my garage right now. Awesome. So, you know, my dad never did that. He never did that. You know, it's a little different now, but back in my dad's time, Santa Barbara is pretty removed from the rest of the surf world. Yeah. Pretty removed. And there wasn't a huge exchange like a board's coming through here. And my dad was like, he had such a vision for what he was doing that he never really paid much attention to what was going on elsewhere. I think you see it because he was always kind of leading the way design-wise. I'm a little more curious and I look at every single board that I can, like on the beach, you know what I mean? When I'm just hanging out with my friends on the beach, I'm looking at boards. If there's a board laying there, I pick it up, I look at the bottom. I go in surf shops, I look at boards. Like I just went in so many surf shops in Spain and France the last few weeks and I looked at every single board that I could. I just love surfboards. Whether they're ours or someone else's, I, I love learning and, and looking. Um, so hopefully Patterson makes me a board or two. Oh, well, that was my next question was <laughs> if you could if you could get any board from anybody on the planet, what would you get and from whom? Oh, yeah, Patterson for yeah. sure. What would you get? High-performance shortboard? I would get a high-performance shortboard and a groveler. Okay. Whatever he wants to make. Awesome. Um, who should we be aware of? Like what up-and-coming shapers should we be aware of? Is there anybody who you're following on Instagram or like, dude, they're doing some incredible stuff that maybe they're kind of under the radar? That's a great question. First of all, I'm not on Instagram. Oh man. And I don't have a smartphone. The entire surf world <laughs> exists on Instagram nowadays. <laughs> it's like where I get all my news and everything. I, I don't have social media, so I don't know. I missed out on that part. Well, it's actually probably a really good thing. <laughs> it's got its ups and downs, yeah. I'm sure. You seem to have crafted a really well-balanced life. Hmm. Um, so I don't know, maybe I'm catching you at the end of a long struggle where you were overworking or over something, and this is the result of it. But um, how have you had that? How did you find the clarity for how you want to live? I mean, you're obviously doing two things that you're passionate about, raising a family, and you seem to be doing them all um, happily and health, healthfully. Healthfully. Yeah, what is that like? <laughs> healthfully. Yeah, thank you. Those are kind words. Well, a big part of that was our experience with Daisy. You know, everything just comes into focus, and you figure that life is really fragile and life is short. And we got to figure out what's important and what's not and how we want to live life. So, um, since then, I think we've determined to enjoy life as much as we can, have fun, do things that we enjoy doing with people that we enjoy doing them with, not work too much. I would say before the Daisy thing, I, I probably did work too much. Yeah. And I, I for sure took myself and what I did too seriously, for sure. So now I don't take anything quite as seriously, certainly not myself. I'm really disciplined about having fun. Like it's a discipline for me to surf. It's a discipline for me to hunt. It's a, dis a discipline to go off-roading and camping and to do this stuff with my son and my family and people that I care about. That's an important part of life. I'm disciplined in my faith, you know, as a Jesus follower. I'm disciplined in my craft. 
um, because I really value those things. So I tried to just like live a life where we could fit them all in and not compromise values and integrity and what's important. And, you know, nobody ever gets to the end of their life and says, gosh, I, I wish I would have worked more. Right? Nobody says that. I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have had more fun. I wish I would have served more people. I wish I would have done some stuff that was more meaningful. I wish it wasn't so about myself, you know? I have a four-year-old daughter, Fifi, and um, I, I want to have fun for a lot of years with Fifi. Yeah. So I want to build a life that allows for that. Um, nobody says they want to work, they wish they would have worked more, but I think the life that you've designed um, isn't it's almost not classified as work, and Isaiah's here, and you're able to kind of serve people while you're doing a lot of your work as well. Mm -hmm. So all of your life's um, stated ambitions seem to kind of overlap with work and recreation, so I think that's good. But it's a model, I think, uh, for people to aspire to, and yeah. That's good, yeah. Thanks, David. Appreciate the, that. You're welcome. The final question for everybody interviewed is just, what was the last surfboard that you rode? Last surfboard that I rode, uh, it would have been, okay, cool, yeah. Uh, yesterday, day before? Day before yesterday, twin fin, bro. Really? Twin fin with a, a little trailer. A groveler twin fin? Or a, <laughs> a what? A groveler twin fin? Or oh, I don't know. Gro is a twin fin a groveler? Is a groveler a twin fin? Oh, man, it was a 5'11 twin fin, stringerless PU. You hear that? I hear Stringerless it. PU. And uh, my wife and my daughter Fifi and I just went down to Rincon in the evening. Fifi's super into swimming in the ocean now. And oh, so nice. In the evening, she's like, Daddy, let's go for a swim. So we went down there, took my board, didn't really realize there was much waves, but there was just like a little like thigh-high, high-tide wave coming through at the river mouth at Rincon. And uh, I was out there and I had the best session. Dude, I had so much fun. I was the only guy out, it was thigh high and the twin fin was flying. I had so much fun. Awesome. The water's like more warm right now than it usually is up here and yeah. I was frothing. And then the, the, what, the board that I rode before that was this new one that I've been working on with Zeke and um, Connor O'Leary's riding it too called the FJB. And it's just a high performance shortboard but it's so much fun. Zeke's been riding it all year. And we had a little south swell, and I was riding that, and I was amped. I was wow. so amped. I felt like I was surfing good. You know when you feel like you're surfing good? Yeah. Which you're not. So never, like, don't ever film me. Don't let me Definitely see myself. <laughs> Just let me in my head feel like I'm doing Zeke Lau turns. Yeah. That's how I felt. Yeah, yeah. I was amped. I just want to go down the line like Zeke Lau. I don't even need to do the turn. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Dude, I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. search of ordinary things how much of a tree 
bends in the wind I started telling the story Without knowing the end Thanks again to Britt and the crew at Channel Islands for hosting me. SurfSplendorPodcast.com is where you can find everything that we discussed. This episode required a trip to Santa Barbara, plus, of course, hours of prep and editing. You can support this work and ensure continued content by donating and supporting the sponsors that support us. Don't have to go out of your way and don't purchase unnecessarily, but we all wear sunglasses, so consider buying your next pair from spyoptic.com. They actually have prescription glasses too and snow goggles, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show. So you'll be doing yourself a favor as well because it's super premium quality product, plenty of designs for anyone's preferences, And then, of course, they have the patented happy lens to let the good light in and block the bad light out. And they will give you a t-shirt for free just for being a listener. So put the t-shirt in your cart and then use our promo code podcast and the price will zero out. Spyoptic.com promo code podcast. See happy. And then there's a couple of days left to win the Almond R-Series soft top. All donations that come in in August will be entered to win. I'll randomly pick a winner on September 1st and then post it on my Instagram stories at Surf Splendor. So good luck there. Thank you, Almond, for that. I'm scheduled to record an episode with Chaz Smith for The Grit this Sunday morning and uh, when he gets back from his book tour of the Pacific Northwest. So you can catch that episode on that podcast feed. And I'll be back here on Surf Splendor next Thursday reporting live from Surf Ranch. I'm going to do four episodes in four days. A behind-the-scenes, off-script look at the Surf Ranch Pro. So I'm really looking forward to that. And um, it's going to be intense. A lot of recording and a bit of work. But really psyched to be there and just kind of be behind the scenes. So if you happen to be there, definitely come find me. Say hi. I will get you on the air. All right. uh, Lots to look forward to in the coming weeks. Track it all, of course, in your podcast feed and on social media at Surf Splendor and SurfSplendorPodcast.com. Thanks so much. Until next time, this is David Scales reminding you, get back into the ocean, share a couple of waves, and shred them.